Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Josh Evans. And I'm Brett Chisholm. And on today's episode, we discuss some of our favorite conspiracy theories, and my personal favorite, the Flat Earth Theory, and more specifically, how Flat Earthers keep trying to prove through experimentation that the Earth is flat, but they can't stop proving that us globetards are actually right. And then Brett surprises me by bringing one of his favorite, and one of my favorite, content pieces of all time, which I almost forgot existed. But thanks to the majesty of the content clearinghouse, it has reinfected my brain like a fast-moving zombie virus. The metaphorical bite in this case is an exhaustively researched content piece, which convinced me to reread Max Brooks's World War Z, an oral history of the zombie war. Movies, shows, and video games, podcast books, and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearing House. Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. Brett. Josh. How are you? I was doing great until I found out from my friend Jamie. Shout out to Jamie. Uh, he's one of our small handful of listeners we have in Alaska. And Ooh, he is a nice. pilot for another cargo company. And we were just chatting today. He He's also a big fan of the show, listener, and really into UFOs like we are. So that's great. But he told me that FedEx has a couple of 777s and 747s that have chaff. And I was like, dude, I don't know what you're talking like about. anti-missile? Yes. <laughs> anti-missile. Because I told him that the company I work for has a bunch of 777s on order and we're supposed to receive them. And they did a flight test for one of them yesterday in Tel Aviv because that's where they're getting converted. Ooh. And I'm like, that doesn't seem like a great time to Yikes. be testing a triple seven over Israel. But then he was like, oh, are your your guys is going to come with this anti-missile defense system. I had no idea, but apparently that is a thing in civilian cargo aircraft. They have anti-missile defense systems. <laughs> Dude, man, there are a few stories which uh, I can't pull any details out of the ether right now because I'm an idiot. But uh, I've heard stories about like passenger jets, you know, back in the '80s or whatever, getting shot down flying over Soviet-controlled territory, just like getting shot with missiles for f- creeping into no-fly zones back in the day. That's such a scary thing to even contemplate. Because I don't know when I'm on a passenger jet, I don't ever, ever once think about getting shot with a missile. But yeah. it's just like in, in different parts of the world that that is actually a possibility. That is so terrifying. That's nuts, right? Yeah, that is crazy. As if flying wasn't dangerous enough already. <laughs> but yeah, I, but besides that, man, I'm doing great. I just went on a little trip to Mexico City, Ciudad de Mexico. And then uh, my good friend Jess and I, we met in paragliding school in Utah. So we're newer friends but we're becoming quick friends uh she is a let me see if i get this terminology right because it's a different world than i'm involved in she is a high altitude ski mountaineer i think is what the terminology is so she's she climbs like pretty serious stuff like she goes to she was in pakistan for four months you know that's like a that's like a usual trip for her is to like 
hike up G2 or, you know, I don't know the names, all these mountains, but she's down in Mexico for a month, invited me out. And so it was just like a couple of little birdies leaving the nest, like going out on their own. Uh, We did hire an instructor, Um, did not speak any English, but that's okay. We made it work. And yeah, got a bunch of like epic flights down in Mexico, which was so awesome. Valle de Bravo. Uh, there's a couple sites, uh, La Torre and El Pinon for any paragliding listeners out there. This is my new thing. I'm super new and challenged, but I'm really stoked about it. Dude, that is awesome. You're like an ultimate flight creature now. Yeah, let's do it. Wish I had that kind of free time. Yeah. That's incredible. <laughs> uh, I wish I had I, more uh, free time. I haven't, I'll be able to report back on this later, but I have a really incredible trip planned for next weekend Uh, i'm going down to uh, texas to visit my buddy who used to own skydive 35 and uh he no longer owns the drop zone but he invited us out to come and do a private skydiving event where he's going to just take the plane off of his uh king air which he's now converted into just a uh commuter plane and just like, yeah, we'll just take the King Air out and just jump. Just like five or six of us go out and private skydiving boogie. And I asked him, like, oh, did you stop the hangar? He's like, no, we'll just pack in the hangar where I park the King Air. So we'll just jump out there on the airfield, do whatever we want. There's no, There will be no fun jumpers. There will be no tandems. It's just like whatever pace we want to go at. And he was debating whether he wanted to leave the uh, – whether he wanted to leave the uh, seats in. So I don't know. We might get to ride up to altitude in like some recliners. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I'm so excited. I've never done anything like that in skydiving. Oh my it's gosh, amazing that's really awesome. A, uh, like to have a, a new scenario present itself where it's like, wow, this is like, this again, like getting shot down by a missile while riding in a passenger liner. This is not a scenario every envisioned would even be possible. Just like, skydiving without a drop zone and without a true skydiving plane just That's your friend taking awesome. you up it's it's like what you always dream of i don't know it's like kind of like the like a point break dream without all the uh bank robbery yeah. <laughs> man some of the best like skydives i've ever been on was jumps at skydive 35 with you and every single person skydiving uh with maybe like one or two exceptions was a current or former wind tunnel instructor and I was, oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm like still getting current again. Like I didn't own gear at the time. I hadn't jumped in like a decade and then I was renting gear and I'd had like a couple of jumps under my belt, if I remember correctly. But I was like, these are some like big boy jumps. Like I, <laughs> I'm like, uh, it's kind of like paragliding in Mexico. I'm like, am I in over my head? Uh, I'll be all right. And it worked out. So <laughs> perfect. My idea, that's the last thing I'll say about this, then we'll move on. But uh, my idea that I want to try, and the more I think about it, the more I realize this is probably a terrible idea. But I want to do a a five-way jump with all of us where everyone has their own skyball. Oh, my God. uh, That would be so awesome. But the more I think about it, I'm like, yeah, we're going to let them go, and they're all going to be falling at different speeds. And then we're just going to be spread out vertically for like 2,000 feet. So. Maybe for, it's a terrible idea. For safety. We'll Vertical see. separation for maybe safety. We'll, maybe we'll try it with two and we'll just slowly work our way up. <laughs> These guys are crazy. They'll try anything. So uh, <laughs> that that's my idea and I will report back in a few weeks and let you know if we actually did that or I not. I can't wait to hear about it. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right, well, let's get going with the show here. Uh, if you are new to the Content Clearinghouse, welcome. Thank you so much for downloading the show. Uh, this is a content appreciation show where each week one of us will profile a piece of content, a movie show, video game, podcast, or book, something that we are obsessed with. And we do this with the, the intent of selling the other on consuming this piece of content and also you the listener we're trying to get you guys to go out and watch read listen to all the stuff that we love and uh before we do that we always start off the show with what we call an off top an off topic discussion it's something that we found fascinating not necessarily content related just something from the world that piqued our interest this week and uh brett on that note are you ready for an off top i can't wait it's my favorite part of the show, except for the content. <laughs> Is it? Yeah. Hey, I like the whole show. It's so hard to pick a pick apart. Uh, so you know how we do, Brett. I got a question for you. I'm ready. What's your favorite conspiracy theory? Oh, not like one that could be true, because obviously there are many times in the history that groups have conspired to pull off nefarious plots. But more like, what's your favorite? classic ludicrous conspiracy theory oh interesting this is a great question and it it's perfect for me because i feel like i have a few favorites <laughs> do i have to pick one or can perfect. i throw can i throw a couple out there yeah and you don't have to go too deep into it i just want to yeah. know yeah what your favorite is and maybe two or three things about it would makes you love it okay well uh bigfoot is fascinating to me um, you know, the the OG Bigfoot footage from like I think the 1960s has never you really just call been it big footage. The big <laughs> Save yourself some time. That's pretty good, Josh. That's why you get paid the big bucks on the show. <laughs> oh yeah, so many bucks around here. Um, yeah, I mean that footage is like it's been analyzed like super old school, like this is pre, you know, CG. I've heard a lot of claims that it would be impossible to pull off with just a person in a suit um and what's super weird about it is like the native americans have a like big brother bigfoot creature in their lore and then um if you dive into the like skinwalker ranch tales um there's a lot of overlap with credible ufo sightings and like creatures and bigfoot so i don't know i it's not something that i just like totally discount but as more of like a nuts and bolts, like, you know, I, I do, I have an open mind, but I do like keep both feet grounded in this reality. It, it feels pretty outlandish, but Bigfoot's definitely uh, one of my favorites. Did you see the, there was footage that came out of Colorado recently. It was somebody riding a train up in the mountains and they captured, it's pretty clear footage of exactly what looks like a Bigfoot. And no kidding. It's just like right up on the hillside. And uh, so there were reports of a drone following the train. And so people, I mean, first of all, that's just something that people fly drones do. So that's not necessarily weird because uh, it's awesome to follow trains. But <laughs> people were theorizing that it was some kind of uh, publicity stunt. And the drone was shooting footage of the mm. train while the Bigfoot was in view. Interesting. But I'll see if I can find this footage. I saw it on Facebook, so who knows where where it still is, uh, if it's still available, but, uh, it looked just like a Bigfoot. It was pretty awesome. I mean, it was probably a, just a really good suit of some sort, but, uh, Hey, there might be a Bigfoot here in CO now. 
Hey. But yeah, we're maybe not here to talk about Bigfoot, Brett. Wait, let me throw out one more of my faves. All right, one more. One more. So I think it's I don't know if it's called the Mandela effect, but it's a I've I've, oh, I've yeah. I hear referenced a lot the Berenstein Bears or the Bernstein Bears. So like there's mm-hmm. like literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people remember Nelson Mandela uh dying in prison in Africa when he didn't. And so there's like ideas that there's like multiple universes, parallel universes, and people are like tuning into other universes and like people swear like, oh, the Berenstein Bears was spelled with an E. I don't remember that specific example. I've never experienced this personally, but it's one of those things where it's like so easily like, oh, you just Google it. This is how it's spelled. But people there you know there it's just it doesn't seem like a coincidence that like so many people remember it in a very specific way might be a psychological effect to that but i don't know it's super interesting and part of that too the mandela effect is that the people that remember it one way can literally not be convinced that it's ever been any other way yeah and that actually feeds perfectly into my favorite conspiracy theory. Ooh, I can't wait. My favorite is Flat Earth. And oh, I know no. <laughs> we've talked about Flat Earth a bit on this show in the past, but I thought it would be fun to discuss times that Flat Earthers attempted to prove the Earth is flat and accidentally kept proving it's actually a globe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. My friend Jamie is going to love this episode that I was talking about. <laughs> Yeah, we've had a lot of conversations uh, about flat Earth back in the day. Oh, perfect. <laughs> yeah, flat Earth is like a barometer. If it's like uh, somebody that you want to hang out with, you just bring up flat Earth. And if they're on uh, Team Globe, then you're like, okay, this is a person I can I can be around. Uh, what makes it uh, what makes it my favorite? Like one of the things is the fact that the believers have to suspend disbelief and destroy reason within their own minds just to make it work. Like I found a story on my favorite pop-up ad generator slash occasionally interesting story host of a website, iflscience.com, is titled, YouTuber successfully completes Flat Earther's $100,000 challenge, comma, Flat Earther refuses to pay. (laughs) So this is, it's from 2017, it's kind of old, but insanity is timeless. So a Flat Earth YouTuber, uh, flat, Flat Out Hero, proposed a challenge to another YouTuber, Wolfie6020, who runs a Flat Earth debunking channel. And the challenge stated that he had to prove you can fly from point A to point B to point C and then back to point A with the distance between each point being the same and by taking a 90-degree turn at every point. So Flat Out Hero claims, it's impossible, but don't tell the globetards that This is the final nail in the ball earth coffin. I'm happy to be the one that hammers it in. (laughs) That's what Flat Earth Hero stated in a boisterous comment. Oh, and Flat Flat Out Hero bet Wolfie $100,000 that this was impossible. He said, This type of shape is impossible to draw on a flat plane as an equilateral triangle drawn in two dimensions is comprised of 60 degree angles. But... It is, it is possible on a globe, if you believe in such things. So, with nothing writing on it from his end, other than certainly hearing a flat earther argue against science, fact, and logic, and $100,000 to potentially gain, Wolfie did it. So, 
He shared his flight plan on his channel in a video that has over 6 million views because people love debunking Flat Earth. And the flight plan goes from the Galapagos to the Gulf of Guinea in Africa, then all the way to the North Pole, and then back down to the Galapagos. And the flight plan was created in digital 3D charting uh, software. So each leg of the journey is about 6,000 miles. And of course, Flat Out Hero ghosted him based on some obscure delusional fine print that doesn't make sense or make any difference in the method that the experiment was performed. So Flat Out Hero claimed that it is possible to chart it on globetard charts, you know, <laughs> ones that are shaped like globes, those are his words, but it would be impossible on a flat paper chart because he only understands how drawing works and not how our planet works. So Brett, I'm not a pilot, so I got to ask. As a flat earther yourself and a pilot, would you like to comment on this experiment? <laughs> Don't you dare spread this misinformation. <laughs> this, we, we live in, these times are too tumultuous for me, for my reputation to like <laughs> be able to take a hit like that. Oh, that's a rough one. Well, Brett, these aren't my beliefs. These are your beliefs. So you, you explain, explain yourself. <laughs> I've actually flown <laughs> with a flat earther pilot. I could not believe it. I could not How's believe it. How's it possible? I don't know. I'm like, okay, dude, like when we leave Los Angeles and we fly west and then we land somewhere, you know, we're in Japan, we keep flying west, we keep flying west. All of a sudden we're at the east coast of the US. Like, how do you explain that? Well, it's like a disc. I'm like, what? What are you talking that about? That still doesn't make sense because you can't do that on a plate. <laughs> Um, I don't know. Something I like, I do want to just throw out there just to play devil's advocate is I like a healthy skepticism. I like people saying, I mean, this is what science is built on. Like, Hey, let's test ideas. Right. So I like a healthy skepticism. I like not being able to, uh, just accept information blindly but it's it, it also is very scary and it's very it's it's frankly disturbing that people uh, like we cannot agree on s like basic scientific facts, like things that have been like tested and proven and independently observed and just like the most basic of things. If you can't agree on those basic building blocks, then it's I think it's really hard for a society to function. But like to use the UFO phenomenon as an example of what's happening right now. You know, one of the reasons it's really hard for people to accept that things might be happening is because it's just been discredited over and over and over for decades. And so now it's such an uphill battle for, you know, like these Navy pilots that are coming out and saying like, hey, we have video, we have radar, and they're still fighting this like sto social stigma. So like having an open mind isn't necessarily, it's not inherently bad. It's not a necessarily like horrible thing. Um, but, but yeah. This particular belief, I don't think, is healthy skepticism. I agree with it's, that. I agree with it that. It goes so far beyond that. It's, it's like it's into the realm of delusion. Yeah. And uh, yeah, definitely. Trying to, it's like, it's like iconoclastic delusionism. It's like you're just trying to be different and have some crazy belief just to stand out and like just almost for the sake of being different, which I think is evident by how evangelistic flat earthers are about these beliefs. You know, it's like they believe, they believe it in such a way that they're like angry and 
want to change everyone's minds if they don't believe it. And it's just like, it's like a, t- a total suspension of disbelief to even contemplate the idea. There's yeah. so much evidence to the contrary. But this was not the first time that flat earthers propose an experiment and then it gets performed and proves the earth is actually a globe. I found a few others. <laughs> so, uh, I found, uh, so have you seen behind the curve? Yes, I have. Yeah. The <laughs> so last, that last two scene with the light, from this. the like yes. light. Oh my God. That's the best moment. We'll talk about documentary. it. Documentary. Yeah. So, uh, first of all, best name ever for a documentary about flat earthers. Uh, so this, there was a gyroscope experiment on there. Um, uh, it was uh, – there was a flat earther named Bob Nodal. He was trying to prove the disc-like nature of our planet. And uh, he purchased a $20,000 gyroscope. And he said that as the earth rotates – so he was trying to prove that this laser gyroscope would not pick up the rotation of the earth. And uh, so as – he performs this, this experiment and a quote from Bob Nuttall says, as the earth rotates, the gyroscope appears to lean off axis, staying in its original position as the earth's curvature changes in relation. Now I'm no gyroscopologist, so I don't know exactly what that means, but it, it was enough to get this quote out of Bob Nodal. He said, what we found when we turned on that gyroscope, we found that we were picking up a slight drift, a 15 degree per hour drift. This is apparently exactly what you would expect from this particular instrument when used on a rotating globe. Now, uh, Bob Nodal said, now obviously we were taken aback by that. He said, wow, that's kind of a problem. We obviously were not willing to accept that. So we started looking for ways to disprove it was actually registering the motion of the earth. And then at at a flat earth conference, it's in that documentary he told another flat earther we don't want to blow this you know we got twenty thousand dollars in this freaking gyro if we released what we found right now it would be bad it would be real bad what i just told you is confidential by the way it's like he forgot he was on a documentary (laughs) and see this is this is the problem with flat earthers they don't perform controlled experiments and then analyze the results and come to conclusions based on those results you know the scientific method they come up with conclusions and then perform experiments that concretely disprove those conclusions, but then perform thought experiments to convince themselves that they were right all along. Yeah, and then that sounds about right. They complain about having math thrown at them. This is another quote from Behind the Curve uh, in the documentary. Another flat earther, Mark Sargent, states, The reason we are winning against science is that science just throws math at us. It's the sunk cost fallacy on a global scale. Or, I mean... The sunk cost fallacy on a celestial frisbee scale. That's how the expression goes. <laughs> that old chestnut. That old chestnut. And th- this is like, all this stuff is the perfect example of something that Henry Zabrowski from last podcast on the left said in their Flat Earther episode. He said, being a flat earther is all about taking absolutely no shit from anyone, including your own eyeballs. It's like the best way to describe what it takes to believe in this. Oh my God. That's so good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very interesting. So the one you brought up about the, uh, the, uh, light. Yeah. The experiment they did at the end of that documentary. So you don't need any kind of complicated gyroscopology degree to understand just a, a basic grasp of how light works. So at the end of Behind the Curve, a guy named Duran Campanella set up an experiment using two holes cut into styrofoam sheets at the same heights at a couple of miles apart. 
and he placed a light at the same level as the hole on one end and a camera on what I'll just call hole level on the other end. And when the light is turned on, if it appeared in the camera on the other end, it would prove that the earth is flat, I guess. If the light had to be raised, it would prove that the curvature of the earth needed to be compensated for. And I looked up the altitude changes across the planet measured at sea level. It's about a six inch drop per mile based on the curvature of the earth. So when they turn on the light, it wasn't visible in the camera. And Campanella instructed them to raise the light up. And when they did, it magically appeared on the camera. And Campanella's quote when this happened was interesting. That's interesting. And then the, the documentary ends. <laughs> that was the best ending to any documentary I've ever seen. It almost felt like uh, a mockumentary, but it was real. I know. Like the sad thing is that a lot of these guys have stated that it's hard to go back on these beliefs at this point because their friends group, their friend groups are completely wrapped up in this belief and they're afraid that the mainstream would not welcome them back in. And that's really harrowing. Like being locked into dogmatic beliefs because you're afraid your social circle and your support groups might fall apart without them. I mean, is that why you never revealed your flat earth beliefs to me before tonight, just now in this podcast? <laughs> no, no, stop it. No, no. I've always no, been a, I've always no. been a globe tarn. Always. Oh yeah. Well, that's good to know. That's probably why we hang out together. <laughs> I mean, that, that principle though, is why like, it's so hard to leave the Mormon church. I mean, you know, it's why like a lot of like, horrible things have happened in history like it's crazy we just won approval so badly it's true yeah, yeah i mean it's like with it is like a, a dogma problem because once you get into a scenario where you have dogmatic beliefs it's like you just tend to support yourself or surround yourself with people of those other beliefs and then it becomes kind of like uh an echo chamber where you're yeah you know, you're just, you're reinforcing those beliefs, whether they're based on logic or not. And there is like a value in that, especially for people who may have felt uh, ostracized by other communities or something. Yeah. Um, this is just, it's, to me, it's like, it's sad and funny at the same time because flat earth belief, it really requires so many problems and so many just so many leaps to get to that point and uh i'm just glad that i haven't gone down a road like that yeah. i'm sure i believe some crazy shit but uh not this crazy <laughs> and if you're a flat earther <laughs> out there we welcome you back with open arms we sorry we're, we're sorry that we poked a little fun at your value system your beliefs but you know, there is a opportunity for redemption for everybody. And it's never too late to admit, like, I was wrong about something and get some new information and, um, you know, give give a little chuckle at yourself and move on. It's okay. And the earth is globular. <laughs> Brett, I'm talking to you. <laughs> God. God. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so with wow. that in mind, yeah. what's on your content circuit, Brett? Oh, man. Well, this is uh, reminding me of uh, a scene in Veep. I finished Veep. And it's uh, uh, one of the characters is like trying to get like math taken out of schools. 
I can't I can't remember the term <laughs> oh, that he no. had for it, but it was it felt very like flat earther esque for sure. Um, honestly, my content circuit I haven't had a whole lot on it. I I started watching the newest season of You. Um, it's been very very casual. I've been really focusing on like paragliding and working and physical activity, which I know this is very unusual for a professional contentologist Gross. to not have a super full content circuit. But I'm gonna it's work disgusting, on that. Disgusting, Brett. I know. I know. When do you when, when do you find time to put on weight? <laughs> Sitting around just watching content. <laughs> oh man, a sedentary lifestyle is not the not the jam for sure. So I got to combat it. Mm. I do a lot of sitting. What about what about Gin V? Have you been watching that? Oh, I have. Okay, so I think I've, I've been watched, watching that. Yeah, I think I've seen two or three episodes. Whew. It's, I watched the first three. I haven't. Uh, I just watched the ones that came out on release day. Okay. I haven't seen the. Uh, I haven't seen any of the new ones the last few weeks. Uh, yeah, I haven't either. Uh, yeah. What do you think so far? Do you uh, are you feeling that it's a worthy addition to the universe of the boys? Oh hell yeah, absolutely! It's Dude, pretty it's so good. It's really good. I definitely. I just. Um, I just kind of put it on the back burner, and I haven't thought about it since I've been just like traveling and having fun, but. Man, I'll tell you, it's if the boys is like a lot of social commentary uh, about sort of like some of the downsides of humanity. Gen V is that, but with like a more young adult spin, like definitely. I think you and I texted a little bit about this. Like it definitely is addressing issues that, you know, like teenagers or college age kids. It's really weird for me to say kids as a grown-up 34-year-old man. But, yeah, it's excellent. It is strange. I still feel like a child at heart. <laughs> yeah. I totally get it. Yeah, man, uh, this show is very disturbing because it's like, it, it kind of takes like the, it's like the Van Wilder style, like college romp, but like the most messed up thing it could ever be because it's in the universe of the boys. And, yeah, it is really disturbing thinking about these uh, these like young adults having these superpowers, and when they they really start getting into like backstories of just soups in general, and it seems like it's kind of just a given that at some point they're going to kill their own parents on accident with their superpowers, and the ones that don't are like certainly the outliers, like Starlight not having ever killed her mom on accident. You know that's. It seems like yeah. a, a defining uh, – it's like a, a defining moment in so many of the soups' lives. And one of the reasons that a lot of them start going down these like really depraved roads and just thinking of humans as not being on the same level as them because like being forced to reckon with something at such a young age. And yeah. then you know it can have occasionally have the opposite effect of like creating some sort of – morality in a soup but anytime that happens they're like the ultimate outliers and yeah, that's a interesting thing seeing you know the young adults that are closer to that event and having their stories explored a lot of good details in there you pointed out that it was god you uh godalkin university and like mm -hmm. i t that went right over my head i was like oh man that's so good yeah a lot of great uh, so good great world building so what else is on your yeah, content circuit besides uh, Gen V? Well, I saw uh, I actually finally saw another movie that has uh, 
Anthony Starr in it. <gasps> oh, I, really? I don't think I've ever seen anything else with him. Yeah, uh, The Covenant, Guy Ritchie's The Covenant with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. He is, he's just one of the characters that shows up at like the halfway point. And he doesn't look really anything like Homelander. He doesn't have the blonde hair. He doesn't have the fake muscle suit. He just looks like a regular dude. And uh, he's got like a beard. The only way I really recognized him was with his his iconic Anthony Starr smile. Yeah. He has like such a such a strange smile, which works perfectly for Homelander. But for sure. anytime he would smile in the movie, like, oh God, he's so creepy. But uh, yeah, it was awesome to see him outside of that and realize that I think he's actually a year older than me. I think he's 45 because in the in the boys he doesn't seem like a middle-aged person at all the way they church him all up with the blonde hair and like the fuckboy haircut and they just make him look like he's in his you know like late 20s which i think in the story he's supposed to be he was supposed to be born in 1981 so, you know, he's not he wouldn't be that much younger than I am now, but he hasn't aged like a normal human and they do a really good job of that in the boys. But it was interesting to see him in just like his kind of natural state and man, he's a really awesome actor and so good. It was cool to see just a different type of acting chops from him. And that movie is also really cool by the way. It's a really cool war story movie which is right up my alley. The the fact that like, I literally feel like I am afraid of a fictional character is a testament to the powers of his acting, for sure. So good. Most terrifying character ever and most fascinating character ever put on screen. Like, any time he's on screen, just I just, like, wish it would last forever. Yeah. It's so good, man. For sure. So that's about it for me right now, man. Nice. Right on. All right, well, let's uh, take a break, and then when we come back, we'll get into the content. Ooh, content. Clear it out. Welcome back to the Content Clearinghouse. Brett, you've been you've been building this one up. You're telling me it's uh, mind-blowing, so it, you better deliver. It's, it's some classic Content Clearinghouse content. <laughs> Ooh, all right. All right, let's hear it. Oh, Josh. Yeah. Uh, if this content oh, was was meat. You crazy flat earther. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> I got to nip that in the bud. I need a T-shirt that says like, yeah, not flat a flat bud. earther. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, no, it, I this is the this is the Waigu uh, like level of content. We're talking top shelf stuff, buddy. Top of the bookshelf, because it's a book that I'm talking about. Ooh, and I haven't done that in a while. Haven't had a book in a while. Yeah, I've been on the show streak, it seems like. Uh, I know you're going to have a lot of thoughts on this particular book because not only is it one of your favorite forms of content being a book, but it's from one of your absolute favorite genres of content. And I'm pretty sure that this piece of content is actually one of your favorite pieces of content. This All is actually... Right. Okay. this is. This is the kind of content that really inspired us to start this show in the first place. That and, of course, the the need that we both had to justify the hundreds of thousands of dollars that we spent getting our degrees in contentology from Harvard. Degrees weren't cheap. No. No, no, no. Harvard, Harvard is, people. <laughs> it's not cheap. It's a money sink, you could say. 
<laughs> I mean, uh, so another thing about this, too, I, I feel like this is similar to our last episode where you brought District 9 to the show, because that's one of my longtime favorite pieces of content. And I'm pretty sure this was another like unofficial, unsanctioned race between us of who would actually cover this book first. And guess what? I'm going to win. It's about to be me. (laughs) Stop building up all this drama, Brett. Lay it on me. All right. All right. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce this outstanding piece of content by asking you a question. Oh, God. I hate questions. (laughs) (laughs) It's not about Flat Earth, is it? It is not. Uh, So, Josh. I'm ready. In the event of a real-life zombie apocalypse, how do you think the United States government would respond to the threat of a zombie horde? And a follow-up question, would the U.S. government fuck it up as badly as they did in this book, and why is the answer definitely yes? (laughs) You mean as bad as they did in World War Z? Boom! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah! Nailed it! (laughs) Uh, I don't have a whole lot of faith. Honestly, yeah. <laughs> uh, if it was a real zombie apocalypse and it followed uh, true zombie fiction rules, I don't think any government would be able to handle it. I think it would be, I think it would be a pretty clear bowl over just right from the start. Because by the time, what's so scary about zombies is by the time that you realize you're dealing with zombies, it's probably too late because the first people in your vicinity that are going to get bit are probably going to be people that you know. And uh, you're not going to immediately think that, oh, my friend is sick, I need to murder them. You know, it's like the people that are going to survive are going to be people like Rick Grimes from The Walking Dead who is in a coma and didn't see any of it happen and then somehow got lucky. Because if if your family gets bit, you're probably going to be doing what you would always do when your family is sick. You know, you'd be like trying to comfort them and, you know, all it takes is hugging them at the wrong moment when they turn and then bam, exponential growth of the zombie population. Well, see, I disagree with you. You're talking very anecdotal and very small scale. And this is a book that's all about the large scale. It's all about, you know, all the countries we have, 9 billion people on the planet, all the different climates, all the different strategies and techniques and responses to the zombie threat and that's something that makes this book really interesting um and i think it's very realistic but we're gonna get into it let's get into it yeah so uh as you put it i will be talking about max brooks critically acclaimed novel world war z the complete title is world war z an oral history of the zombie war i'm gonna get something out of the way i am talking about the book I don't hate the 2013 Brad Pitt vehicle with fast movie, fast moving zombie hordes. Uh, It's pretty fun. Uh, It's pretty scary. It's decent. But to call it a film adaptation of the book is doing the book a pretty major disservice. The movie just completely diverges from the book's narratives and themes. And actually, Max Brooks said it best when asked if he liked the movie. He said, quote, I thought it was a really cool movie that happened to have the same title of a book I once wrote, end quote. Yeah, it starts off really good, too, and I think it kind of derails uh, somewhere in the middle. I thought I thought the uh, in the movie, the opening scene where the outbreak is happening and he sees the person get bit and then he counts and then he has like this time uh, time stamp on how long it takes to turn like, oh, that was really cool stuff, but definitely was not 
following the story of the book Which really it, in any way. It's it, it's too bad because, I mean, maybe Max Brooks like got paid and I'm happy for him. I don't know what, what the deal is, but but just just call it something else. Like if it, if you're making a completely different story that has nothing, you know, in World War Z, there's really no like central protagonist like it is. It is truly like, you know, stories collected of individuals that survived the zombie war or like their journals from the zombie war. And yeah, nothing in common. Um, Would have made a great anthology TV show. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a a lot of the research I did online for this episode. A lot of people are like, it deserves a proper adaptation. And the only way that could do that is like, you know, through some sort of long format, like a TV series, something like that. Uh, So speaking of Max Brooks, the author, uh, fun fact about him, he is the son of comedy legend Mel Brooks, which I did not know until I started research for this episode. And another fun fact, before World War Z, Max Brooks wrote a satirical survival manual about zombies called the Zombie Survival Guide. Are you familiar with this? So cool. Okay. Yeah, uh, because I... Since I was a kid, I had been thinking about zombie survival nonstop. It's like 90% of my brain. And I had this idea uh, when I first moved to Colorado. I lived on a third-floor apartment, and I had this idea of how to fortify a, uh, a an apartment against a zombie outbreak. And my thought was, so you, the first thing you do is you would knock out the stairs on the bottom floor, and then you could use the running boards to get up and down. I remember you talking about this. You have a zombie moat, and then if you could somehow take over the entire uh, apartment com- complex, the building you're in, you could knock out walls, you could knock holes in floors, and you could make passageways from one floor to the next, and you could turn the entire building basically into a fortress. And in that book, he specifically talks about fortifying apartment complexes and buildings with stairs. He's like, yeah, you knock out the stairs, and then you create passageways. I was like, oh, man, I'm right on the money for the zombie survival guide. I'd be great at this. Bring on the apocalypse. So I I have not read this. I remember seeing it in stores. It was, uh, like, hugely popular. But I'm so glad that you're familiar with this because I found some really interesting stuff about it. So I'm going to do a little bit of a mini deep dive before we actually get into World War Z. Uh, So something that I I love about this first published work is although the zombie survival guide was generally well-received as both informative and entertaining, some critics struggled to classify the book as either a satirical parody or a sincere exploration of the zombie genre. In an interview with the New York Times, Brooks said he felt his literary agent had marketed the book as a parody saying, and this is a quote, I, how I think my agent p- pitched them was like Mel Brooks' son, who just won an Emmy on SNL, wrote this unbelievable parody, tongue-in-cheek, he never breaks character. He's totally making fun of a zombie plague. However, he considered the book to be in the self-help genre rather than humor. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and he says, I can't think of anything less funny than dying in a zombie attack. <laughs> So the fact that he followed up That's awesome. It's so good, right? The fact that he yeah, followed up awesome. that work with World War Z, I mean it is profoundly amazing. So I have heard that the Zombie Survival Guide is to World War Z what The Hobbit is to the Lord of the Rings trilogy in terms of scope and scale. 
And you can actually thank the podcast uh, School of Everything Else archive for that comparison. And it's actually a really apt uh, comparison because Max Brooks himself says World War Z is a follow-up to his survival guide and that the zombies in World War Z obey the same laws described in the survival guide. And he even suggested that they may exist in the same fictional universe. So I don't know if that's a surprise to you, but very interesting considering they're very different in tone. I mean, it makes sense that uh, it seems like if you were going to write a zombie piece of zombie fiction that's is detailed and intricate as World War Z, then it would make sense to create some sort of lore Bible beforehand. And that's like, that's what I always considered the zombie survival guide. It seemed like, like the, all the background research and world building that he did for the way the zombie works and the way that survival would work against this type of zombie. And, you know, it all, to me, it always seemed like a continuation. Okay. Yeah. You know, I, I couldn't, I didn't see anything on if like, he planned the novel first and then made the survival guide during the research process. But I, man, I wish I would have like seen something about that, but it's that part is kind of unspecified. Um, or at least I didn't find anything. So, but I feel like it references the same, uh, virus name. I think in world war Z, I think it's called the Solanum virus. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that that is somewhere in the zombie survival guide at some point. I seem to remember that being between the two pieces of work. Okay. Or maybe I just assumed they were connected because they're by the same author and I yeah. conflated that idea in my mind. Well, if they have that that close of a similarity, then that's uh, pretty damning evidence that they're connected. Well, um, before I move on, I do want to mention one more of my favorite sources for this particular outline, and that is the a Max Brooks interview Hadley Freeman published in The Guardian, uh, June of 2020. So one of my favorite quotes is Max Brooks saying, everything I write about has already happened. The history of pandemics tends to come in extremely predictable cycles. So if I'm the smartest guy in the room, we're in big trouble. You got to love this guy's sense of humor. Oh, yeah, he's awesome. Of course, he's funny. Totally. OK, let's talk about the unique blend of horror, drama and geopolitical commentary. World War Z, an oral history of the zombie war, offers a very innovative approach to the, shall I say, Josh, well-trodden path of zombie fiction. It's one of the best things about it. So world building already done. I mean, everybody wants a well-trodden path. So it makes sense. Yeah, Yeah, trailblazing is how you get killed. (laughs) As the complete title indicates, the novel's format is a collection of individual accounts presented as interviews conducted by an unnamed narrator offering a global perspective on the terrifying zombie war. The tone is now, somber. Yeah. Before you go on, uh-huh. would you have to suspend belief more about the zombies or this globe thing? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I can't with you today. <laughs> I just can't. I just can't. All right, continue. <laughs> so the tone of the book is somber serious it's filled with tension and it's a stark contrast to the oftentimes campy nature of zombie fiction one of the best attributes of the book and something that really stuck with me is the super realistic portrayal of how a global zombie pandemic with 
lots of good social commentary baked in. Like this is how in this in my opinion, this is how the the zombie pandemic would go down. It feels accurate I mean, it, to me. Yeah, it feels very real. I just I I don't know if the humans would prevail. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. I don't know. There's a because lot of people. It's, yeah, it's. I think the just seeing the way that our own pandemic happened, I feel like a lot of the success that we saw from this pandemic was the fact that its lethality started to just naturally go down. If it if that didn't happen, I feel like. America specifically would have been in a lot of trouble and probably the world as well because it wasn't handled in any kind of elegant way. And it was really scary during the pandemic, how divisive everything became. And that wasn't even, you know, not even factoring in what it would be like if the people that you used to trust were actually trying to eat you now. And, uh, I think that's like one of the most insidious things about zombies and why, zombie fiction is great but I, f- I feel if this actually happened it would just be like a wildfire that would just burn through humanity so quickly and it would ultimately just be small pockets of survivor survivors not people that were able to mount a consolidated response i feel like it would just move too quickly okay so counterpoint to that the black plague okay. this is something that you know had like an insane mortality rate. It was super viral. We, you know, this is the olden times. We don't have a good understanding of what's happening. Like science, the scientific method wasn't a thing. People are holding flowers in front of their face because they thought it was the bad smells that, you know, got you infected. Life goes on. Like, (laughs) you know, half the population or something crazy is wiped out. And then the ones that remain, it, it just becomes like a distant memory of you know, a few generations down the line. So I, I do think that this could be like a little more on the optimistic side of literature, despite it being quite macabre and somber. But I think this is pretty accurate, dude. That's always what I felt like when I read it. All right. Well, let's get into it. All right. So uh, it's time for our inevitable and necessary uh, spoiler warning. I'm going to talk about some plot points, key moments. That's just how these content deep dives go. There is definitely no way that we could cover all of the insane depth and detail of this incredible work in like an hour-ish long podcast episode. So I don't think spoilers will impact somebody's enjoyment, but I still want to throw that warning out there so I can sleep peacefully at night. Not like you, Josh, thrashing around in your sleep because you watch (laughs) Evil Dead before bed. (laughs) Yeah, that doesn't help. Unlike the flat earth thing, that is actually an accurate (laughs) statement about you. So, (laughs) oh, here we go. Rewriting history about yourself again. (laughs) Okay, so some of the, (laughs) oh my gosh. So some of the details in this book that feel very accurate um, are like even more poignant, especially in the context of a post-COVID pandemic world. Uh, For example, how the first zombie outbreak begins. Uh, the first known case, uh, patient zero, if you will, patient X, I think is what they refer to him as. It's a young boy in a remote village in China who is found with bite marks and a high fever. His condition rapidly deteriorates and he soon reanimates as the first of the undead. 
Now, the Chinese government attempts to contain the outbreak and suppress information about it. Wow. Uh, feels pretty accurate. But yeah, as that, in, <laughs> as that infection spreads, it eventually leads to a global pandemic. Um, you're right about the infection name. It's called uh, Solanum or Solanum in the book. And like other zombie lore, it is primarily spread through bites from infected individuals. So zombie bites a human, virus is transmitted into the bloodstream, leads to infection. The infected individual typically succumbs to the virus, dies, and then reanimates as a zombie. And the novel portrays the zombie infection as highly virulent with a nearly 100% infection rate for those bitten. The incubation period or the time between when an individual is bitten and when they reanimate as a zombie can vary, but it's generally depicted as being quite rapid. And the initial spread of the virus is uh, it's kind of it's made worse by a, the, the lack of information and understanding about the nature of the threat. So that it's the you know the Chinese government is attempting to suppress everything they can, and this contributes. <laughs> <laughs> obviously as it would to a more rapid spread and then as that infection reaches pandemic levels global travel and population movement further facilitate its spread leading to of course the worldwide zombie apocalypse so one of the details i want to mention that i really like is the uh i don't know if you remember this the black market uh organ transplant that that be that's one of the vectors for the virus to spread that's a super cool detail. Like a lot of the zombie lore, there's common threads through it all. So you feel it's like familiar territory, but stuff like that just it feels like so specific and so like original to this book. I'd never like thought about that, heard anything about that. You know, it's like in the infected, they're like harvesting organs and, you know, the these the infected um, that were harvested that have succumbed to the virus, those organs were transplanted into wealthy recipients around the world. So those <sighs> those recipients will then turn into zombies, which spreads it further. And this aspect of the story highlights the global interconnectedness of health issues and the potential dangers of Ill illicit medical practices. And it also serves as a critique of the socioeconomic disparities in healthcare where the wealthy can afford to bypass traditional means and inadvertently end up exacerbating a global crisis. I love that. Do you remember that at all? Uh, I didn't remember that until you mentioned it, but yes, that does ring yeah. a bell. There, there's all, it's been years since I read this book, so there's a lot of things in it. I'm sure a lot of the specifics and the details I don't remember and the individual stories, but yeah, that's like such a unique take on it because usually in zombie fiction, it, it's you know, it's typically like in the horror genre and that's, it's usually a, a little bit more focused than that. Like the, one thing that's unique about this is that it does focus on the entire world and it, since every story, you know, it's a oral history and every story is unique. Then you, there's room in a format like that to tell just like this one off thing. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, black market organ harvesting. And most like shows or especially movies wouldn't have the time or the focus to do something like that. Yeah, that's really uh, that's really interesting and terrifying. It's yeah. like uh, people getting rabies from cornea transplants. That's a story I've heard <gasps> before. Oh my god! Something specific about cornea transplants, dude. Uh, I, uh, 
That's so scary. This this is one of the reasons why I think that so this is the, a difference between zombies and the Black Plague. Is that when the Black Plague killed someone, they just stayed dead. And then by the time people figured out, like, oh, these dead bodies can transmit the Black Plague. Well, in that case, you can just stay away from the dead bodies eventually. And eventually the population, like, that information would spread. And they got a handle on the the virality of it, not communicating it to other people. And then eventually it burned itself out. But with zombies, it's once a person dies from it and they come back, now they're they're like a moving and not necessarily thinking, but they have like there's there's motor function and there is some sort of primal drive for that essentially a monster that exists on the planet to go and propagate itself. And that is and those monsters look like people that you know. And in the beginning, you would not want to kill those people because you would think that they were still alive and they were still sick. And that would spread it so quickly, so much faster, I think, than just a, a, a pathogen of some sort. I think yeah, it's like the, the mental and social aspect of how zombieism spreads. Th- this is very interesting because for somebody that spends a lot of time thinking about preparing for the zombie apocalypse, you seem uh, pretty pessimistic about the outcome for humanity. <laughs> Well, yeah, I think what's great about zombie fiction is like you can imagine yourself being plopped into the middle and you're somehow a survivor. And then, oh, it'd be so awesome. I could do all these zombie survival things I always fantasized about. But in reality, I'm pretty sure I would die almost immediately. Gotcha. Okay. well, I don't have any I I don't have any uh, delusions about the fact that I would actually be like a Rick Grimes type, which does not happen. I would get bitten somehow and. Game over, buddy. I'd be coming after you, and then you would you would think I'm still your friend, and I'd well, eat your fingers. <laughs> oh my god, this is getting real specific. <laughs> I, I I appreciate your grounded self awareness. I'm glad you're not one of those guys that there's like a poll out there that's like, could you land a plane if you had to? And like, I don't know what the percentage is, but most guys are like, hell yeah, I I got this. You know, <laughs> I have no idea about how anything works. Um, well, let me touch on, uh, oh, actually I did want to say the, the, it's interesting that you brought up that rabies story and that just goes to show, I feel like everything in this book has a real world parallel. It feels so grounded. Like, I wonder if that's a story that Max Brooks had heard about and that inspired the, uh, the harvest, uh, as an infection vector. But the, it's interesting you said rabies too, because as this in the book, as this infection was spreading, the U.S. just what they there was during an election, right? So it's all about politics, and so they were kind of ignoring the threat, and then they were saying that it's like an outbreak of rabies, and then they were giving people placebo shots that were ineffective against the virus. They they knew that it was ineffective, but they were just trying to keep the masses calm while they figured out like what to do. Again feels very fucking accurate so like very interesting it's not this book isn't just bagging on like china or the united states or like russia which becomes like this super like evangelical like religious you know this country that's like grounded religion like like it's just such an interesting examination of all of these different countries and what their responses would be and maybe like how their geography would isolate them properly and like cuba for example 
gets be- becomes like this economic powerhouse. Anyway, I'm I'm digressing from my outline. Let me get back. I always love this book so much. That's always my goal <laughs> to digress you from your outline. Man, I want to go back and I want to go back and reread it now after having lived through a pandemic because that's yeah. I hadn't really thought about this book in a long time, but that would totally change the perspective on it. Did you reread the whole book while you were writing this outline? I did not. I it's one of those things where I always try to revisit the um the content that I'm talking about before I do research. Sometimes it's a little bit more difficult depending on how much time we have. The good news is though with World War Z, this is one of those books that I, so I love reading books in physical paperback form. I mean, it's definitely my preferred method. Gross. When when I downsized from a house into an Airstream and eventually a tiny little pop-up camper, I gave away a lot of my book collection. But World War Z has always been one that I just couldn't give away. I've read it multiple times. Um, I, it's always my hope to revisit it anytime I feel like I'm getting a little too comfortable with a lack of zombies in my day-to-day life but (laughs) my bible my paperback copy is just like so well loved and well worn so i didn't feel like it took a whole lot of like i listened to a couple podcasts watched some youtube videos i was like oh yeah i remember that detail i remember that detail but after writing this outline i'm already like you know i i just didn't want to buy it again on my ipad like i already have the paperback but it's in colorado in storage so (laughs) so you you sold yourself on wanting to go back and reread it now don't you That's doesn't that happen with- <laughs> i already, already want to go reread it now after just just the fact that you brought up the the perspective of living through the global pandemic and how many similarity similarities there were yeah man like for that very reason i want to go back and just study the book again well i mean if if haven't you ever like sold yourself on a piece of content that you were you weren't able to like reread or like rewatch or anything before doing the show with me. But then after you do the outline, you're like, I got to like reread this. That- uh, actually, when I, uh, I don't ever do it that way. I always consume, reconsume the thing. It's the okay. only way I can make my outline. Yeah. So usually if I cover a book or something, uh, something I've read before, I'll, I've actually thought about this a lot lately. <laughs> I, I reconsume a lot of content. Yeah, me too. And so yeah. some of the some of the content pieces that I made, I've just been reconsuming like The Lost Fleet, my favorite series of 17 books. And <laughs> as I'm reading it, I'm like, oh, this is the perfect time to write an outline about this thing that I love. But also reconsuming content gives me a little bit of an existential crisis because when I – am rereading or watching or playing a game that I love in the back of my mind. I always think like, what if this is the last time I ever consume this piece of content? Oh my god! I don't know what's going to happen. And God, I'm such a, such a content nerd. Just think <laughs> about my, my entire life cycle and content consumption, <laughs> but it's true. I really do that. Does oh that ever gosh. occur to you? And if not, it will now, buddy. You know, it was uh, it was like a wait but why blog post that was like, this is the number of books an average person reads in a year. This is the average lifespan. Like, pick the number of books or pick the books that you read carefully 
because you might only read like 60 more books in your life or whatever, you know, whatever the numbers were for each person. That but... thing has no idea how many books I read. Yeah. <laughs> What's cool about a Kindle and why it's so gross that you consume books in paperback. Ugh, disgusting. <laughs> In uh, in Kindle, it'll give you it gives you a calendar. This is how many days you've read, and they'll say this is how many books you've read, and this is how many hours you've read. It's oh, you awesome get your stats. Day. Yeah, you get stats. You can gamify reading. Wow, I like that. Got to quantify Anyways, everything Brett, these days. All right, get so, back to your God. You get so easily sidetracked. All right, <laughs> 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 all right. So let me touch on. A couple of other key moments in this book that I really enjoyed. So there's the Great Panic. This is essentially, I was saying about rabies, uh, we were kind of, the U.S. population was lying to the masses. And then we start to realize, like, it comes out in the springtime, like, oh, these shots were ineffective. This is not rabies. And so this is a period of mass hysteria and chaos that ensues as the zombie outbreak becomes a global pandemic. Governments collapse. The social order breaks down. And, you know, people are just desperately trying to escape the undead. And this is kind of this is what you're talking about, where it's like things unravel. It seems like everybody is doomed and everybody's like humanity has ended. And that's a totally understandable thought. Uh, So one of my favorite uh, moments as well, the Battle of Yonkers. This is a key. So awesome. (laughs) Key military engagement early in the war where traditional military tactics and modern technology prove ineffective against the zombies, leading to a disastrous defeat for the human forces. There's the Redeker plan. Tanks can't beat zombies. Uh, the Redeker plan. So this is a co- controversial strategy devised by South African Paul Redeker, which involves sacrificing large portions of the population to save a core group of survivors. And this plan is adopted by many nations, highlighting the grim choices made in the face of the apocalypse. Great fucking writing during uh, during that discussion. Um, the it's clear, like, it's uh-huh. like setting part of the forest on fire as a fire break. Totally, like culling the forest to create a a gap. Yeah. So what's so dark about it too is you know they the 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 powers that were enacting the Redeker plan they knew what was happening to some of these survivors that they were using as bait, but these survivors did not. So they were strategically using like groups of survivors to lure zombie hordes away. So like the core group of survivors that they had planned on rebuilding the world with um, could could survive essentially. So it was kind of like, uh, you know, just super Classic dark elitism. stuff, man. Super so what dark. were they doing? Were they leading the zombie hordes into traps? I don't remember that part. Were they like leading them in, like off yeah. a cliff or something? What were they doing? I mean, it was basically just like it was using, you know, depending on the place, like the geography or the topography. But it was, yeah, it was like luring the the survivors were luring zombie hordes into traps and away from the survivors. But, you know, you say elitism. Another interesting thing that comes to mind about the book is when they're they're talking about rebuilding the society. These people that had these like super high powered jobs that, you know, they're like, I, I'm a marketing executive for oh, useless. <laughs> yeah. And so like they're like breaking down and crying in these interviews. They used to drive like a Mercedes Benz. They made 400K a year. And like now the valuable people are like the plumbers, the electricians, like the plumber is like the most like valuable person in this new society, totally. like somebody that can build things, fix things. 
So it's interesting because it's like, you know, when you reshape a society, things shake out differently. All right. So a couple, uh, another key moment that I really liked was the clearing of America. So this is in the final phase of the war where survivors in the United States equipped with new tactics and technology slowly and methodically reclaim their country from the undead. So it's like you said, at at one point, there's sort of these pockets of survivors living in isolation. But again, this feels kind of true, true to form in the U.S.'s case. It was the U.S. that was like, we're not going to live this way. We're going to take back our nation from this zombie threat. And so they had very specific tactics where they would, you know, they would go in and like methodically use like headshots. They had the lobotomizer, which was like a melee weapon that they could use, um, you know, over and over. They didn't have to worry about running out of ammo. And like, I remember like some of these battles, as long as you had enough ammo and things like if you got lucky, then you could actually clear out a section of zombies. Um, but there, you know, there was like, I think it was the Battle of Hope, if I'm remembering correctly, it was like the first battle that they like won over the zombie hordes. But then, of course, their stories were like they run out of ammunition and these these tactics won't work. Uh, but everything in this book feels so grounded and real. It is insane. I'm So I did write a little bit more if you would like me to expand on the Battle of Yonkers or the Clearing of America or both. Or I can just skip it. It's up to you. Both, obviously. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anytime I listen to a podcast, I'm like, I wish they would just keep talking about this. So okay. both it. So the Battle of Yonkers is definitely one of my favorite parts of the book. Uh, it's a pivotal moment that demonstrates, you know, these all this technology that we have and just like these tactics that work against humans and just the hubris of like the U.S. government and the military strength that we are or were in this case. So the battle pl- takes place in Yonkers, New York. It's a few weeks into the Great Panic. The U.S. military sets up a defensive line along I-87 with the intention of making a stand against the advancing zombies and boosting public morale. It's all about boosting that morale, buddy. The military brings those in votes. <laughs> but the military brings in advanced technology, heavy firepower, M1 Abrams tanks, Bradley fighting vehicles, infantry armed with the latest weapons. The battle is also heavily covered by the media, intending to show the American public that the military is capable of handling the threat. Don't worry, guys, we got this. However, that was a mistake. (laughs) Things very quickly go wrong. The military's tactics designed for fighting the human enemy prove totally ineffective against the zombies. High explosive rounds designed to kill by shock and fragmentation have little effect on the undead who can only be stopped by destroying the brains. The soldiers trained to aim for the chest, the center of mass. They find their shots ineffective. The noise and the chaos of the battle only serves to attract more zombies. Compounding the problem, the military's command and control systems are overwhelmed by the sheer number of zombies, leading to confusion and panic among the troops. The soldiers are also psychologically unprepared for an enemy that feels no fear or pain and does not stop advancing despite taking heavy casualties. The battle ends in a disastrous defeat for the human forces. The military is forced to retreat, leaving much of its heavy equipment behind. 
the Battle of Yonkers. And a bunch of zombies wearing body armor and helmets. <laughs> I think that's more like a zombie anime spinoff that you're thinking of, but I like it. That would happen. If oh no! Were fighting no, you're right. Armor. Oh, totally. No, you're absolutely right. I, I, for some reason, I was thinking of like a video game style, like the zombies like equipping themselves with all the. But no, you're talking about yeah. the the undead yeah, military. Oh, yeah. totally. Oh my gosh, totally. Yeah, that's always like an advanced zombie in a in a game too. They went, oh man, this guy's in riot gear, and they're like, oh, you got to come up with yeah. some new way to kill him. <laughs> yeah, totally. Oh man, that's a great point. I I'm sure that was in the book. I forgot about that detail. Um, yeah. So the the Battle of Yonkers like really serves as a wake up call. It it shows that new tactics and strategies are needed to fight the undead. It marks a total turning point in the war, leads to the development of new weapons and tactics specific uh, to combating zombies. Um, but yeah, something that you brought up uh, on the show, I feel like recently was a memory that you had of tanks being rolled out during COVID. And that feels like such a bizarre parallel from this book to real life like what are the what are the what are tanks going to do to stop covid i think they're like apcs and and i think it was in new york i think they were like blockading a a neighborhood or a borough or something i remember seeing that right at the beginning of the pandemic yeah i mean all that would do is just stop people from moving around zombies you're not gonna you're not gonna stop them with tanks yeah (laughs) i mean every piece of zombie fiction has a burned out tank and you're like oh wow that didn't work (laughs) (laughs) it feels just like eerily similar and it's just this like ineffective show of force but all right i'm gonna get into the clearing of america so this is the final phase of the war where survivors in the united states equipped with these new tactics and technology slowly and methodically reclaim their country from the undead so after the disastrous battle of yonkers the u.s government retreats west of the rocky mountains and establishes a safe zone from which they can regroup and plan their counteroffensive. That's when they uh, implement the Redeker plan, which involves sacrificing certain areas to the zombies to protect more defensible regions. So one of the uh, one of the the new tactics. So they kind of abandon all this traditional warfare and high tech weapons for things that are more practical, right? So I mentioned the lobotomizer. Do you do you remember this at all? <laughs> No, I was going to ask uh, what the weapon was exactly. Okay, so this is like a, a it's a versatile, easy to produce melee weapon. Is it melee or melee? How do you say that? Uh, I've always said melee. Melee? Yeah, I think that's right. I feel like it could go either way because it's spelled with a bunch of E's. <laughs> Definitely. So it, I, I remember reading this um and the for the first time and like looking up the lobotomizer to see what it looks like and i think there's different interpretations of it but it's basically like a long staff with like a curved blade on the end sort of like what you'd like cut um crops with or something like that but you know this is just like something that is easy to to mass produce and it's just like super effective like you don't need bullets oh, you yeah don't, the one I look at looks like a, well, there's a bunch of different ones, but it looks like a, sh- like a shovel spear on some yeah, of them. Some totally. of them look kind of like a battle axe crossed with a shovel. Yep. So they're yep. all very shovel head-esque. Just love it. Love it. 
Yeah, the the standard infantry entrenchment tool, but they just referred to it as the mm. l- lobotomizer. So yeah. So is it like so they hit them? So they have like a wide blade to hit lots of brain. Is that basically like whatever angle you hit them at, you're gonna hit the brain? I thought it was something where they were like literally like cutting off the head, so they could keep. But it's like it's like a super long thing, so that you could keep these zombies like at an arm's length, and you wouldn't have to get mm. like within biting range of them. But I just I you love the idea. The head, though, you make a bunch of zombie landmines. <laughs> that is true. That you gotta go around true. and stab all the landmines at that point. <laughs> yeah, you definitely do. Yeah, and then you know the military also adopted this like slow, methodical approach that I talked about to clearing areas, forming these tight infantry lines that advance slowly and clear out zombies one at a time. So the clearing of America begins on the east coast and it moves westward. And the military, along with civilian auxiliaries, systematically reclaim one area at a time and make these little safe zones. It's super slow. It's painstaking. It takes a number of years to complete. And along the way, they encounter various challenges, including harsh winters and pockets of zombies in unexpected places. And this is, again, this is another turning point of the war. It demonstrates, which I know that you don't buy this, but in my opinion, it, it demonstrates humanity's <laughs> Wait, is ability. This about a uh, flat Earth again? <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> so it it demonstrates humanity's ability to adapt and overcome, and it marks the beginning of the end for the zombie hordes. By the time the clearing is complete, the United States, though drastically changed and scarred by the war, is free of zombies, and the survivors can begin the process of rebuilding so not only i don't yeah i don't disbelieve that humanity can adapt and overcome because that's literally all we ever do but i what i think is scary about zombies is i think in the beginning the fact that they look like the people that we know would wipe out so much of the population i think that fact alone and then I, I just think it would be hard to mount this kind of response with the people that are left. These disparate groups spread out across hundreds of miles, possibly with different doctrine and different uh, belief systems. Uh, I would, I hope that it wouldn't devolve into like what every piece of zombie lore other than this seems to say about humanity is that it would be like warring tribes. Uh, but I feel like that is would be so much more likely. And there may be powerful groups that survived. Um, well, I I mean, there is you do get that tribalism in the book, um, especially on like a larger scale. If I remember correctly, I think Pakistan and Iran uh, like nuke themselves. So like they wipe each other off the map. Um, Israel like shuts its borders. It becomes like a quarantined safe zone. Um, North Korea. I love North Korea the entire population just disappears and like throughout the book, like (laughs) multiple people, they're like, yeah, we have no idea. Like there could just be like this giant horde of zombies like underground, or they might be like living gray underground and been preparing for this for like decades. They're like, we don't know. Like they're, they like, we have satellite imagery and they just disappeared one day. Um, So creepy. But yeah, I do. I think there's that tribalism, but also in zombie lore, we see groups of survivors getting together. We see like pockets of resistance and, you know, people trying to rebuild society and struggling with letting go of the past and like looking towards like a different type of future. 
But I mean, I just I love the format. I love the realism. But a few other aspects of this book that really sets it apart is the social commentary, the geopolitical themes that I've already been talking about, and the character diversity. This book is filled with great commentary using the zombie outbreak as a lens to examine real-world issues such as government ineptitude, survivalism, and societal changes in the face of crisis. There's also a lot of really fascinating characters in the book that are super diverse and reflect a range of experiences and perspectives. I mean, there's uh, between like a mercenary hired to protect celebrities or a blind Japanese gardener. The characters provide some seriously unique awesome. insights into the zombie war. Yeah, I I got to talk about one of my favorite characters, Kondo Tatsumi. This is definitely somebody that represents the personal growth and shifts in societal roles triggered by the crisis. So Kondo, Kondo Tatsumi is a Japanese computer programmer and an otaku which is a term used in Japan to describe people with obsessive interests, particularly in anime and manga. When the zombie outbreak reaches Japan, Tatsumi initially isolates himself in his apartment, continuing his uh, solitary digital life as the world outside him falls apart. This is something that would totally happen. However, when his building is overrun by zombies, he is finally forced to confront the new reality. In a moment of desperation, he blinds himself to avoid seeing the horror that awaits him outside his apartment. After his self-inflicted blinding, Tatsumi, <laughs> Tatsumi is found by Tomonaga Ehiro, an old blind Hibakusha, which is an atomic bomb survivor, and a gardener. Ehiro takes Tatsumi under his wing and teaching him how to survive in the new world. Tatsumi learns how to use his other senses to compensate for his lack of sight, and he embraces the way of the samurai, learning to use a traditional Japanese sword or katana to defend himself against the zombies. Tatsumi's transformation from a socially isolated otaku to a blind samurai underscores one of the novel's key themes, the capacity for personal growth and adaptability in the face of adversity. His story also highlights the effectiveness of old methods against the new threats as represented by his use of the katana against the zombies. Best zombie weapon ever, right? That is dope. It probably would have been way easier with eyes, though. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great point. But that, well, yeah, blinding yourself seems like an extreme measure with not a whole lot of payoff or reward. Just God, close it. your eyes. <laughs> it feels it feels like it feels like so Japanese, though, to do something just like so like, you know, to be like, I ca- like I cannot witness this. And then to like, it's kind of like a heavy heavy type of thing, you know? You got know. built-in blinders built into your face. Is all <laughs> <I'm saying. laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Not the same thing, but thank you for that reminder <laughs> that I have eyelids. <laughs> <laughs> so the novel also explores the geopolitical implications of the outbreak, with different nations employing various strategies. It examines how ex- existing international relations might influence the global response to a crisis of this magnitude. 
I wanted to touch on one more interesting thing about World War Z before I conclude this deep dive. And that is its exploration of the environmental impact of the zombie apocalypse. So as the human population retreats and the world's industries grind to a halt, nature begins to reclaim urban areas, slowly but surely. The environmental recovery, while not the focus of the book, is definitely a fascinating backdrop to the human drama. For example, there are mentions of endangered animal species rebounding due to the decrease in human activity and the air becoming cleaner due to the reduction in pollution. Doesn't this remind you of the uh, COVID-y days gone by? Don't you remember hearing like, oh, there's whales in, you know, off the coast of New York and. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah, it really, it really does. So many, so many parallels yeah. to our pandemic. It reminds me also, um, it's like one of the, it, I think it's one of the coolest things about zombie fiction. Uh, like I'm playing The Last of Us Part 2 again, which I've covered oh, hell on the yeah. show. And one of the coolest things about it is it's like the entire world is just reclaimed by nature. Like you'll you'll be just like moving through apartment complexes and you'll you'll see the remnants of like these people's lives they just like left on a on a dime. There's like food rotted on the table and like their computer is still sitting there and everything all the all the accoutrement of a modern life is there, but then through the broken window is like vines growing in and all throughout the inside of the building there's like grass growing in the carpet and stuff and when i played that game i just had to had to stop and use the photo mode so many times throughout the entire game just taking these pictures of how they had designed nature reclaiming the modern world because it's like it's just so it's so fascinating and it gave such a sense of place in that game and uh, it'd be very uh, disconcerting to see in the real world. But it's always cool, like in I Am Legend or something. You know, it's one of the things they always highlight in this type of fiction in a visual medium. Yeah, The Last of Us, uh, the TV show did this really well, too. And not zombie so content, good. but I Am Legend, the more of like a vampire spinoff, which has some zombie-esque vibes that I love. Like, that's one of the things I love about that movie is just like him driving through like a city that's like with deer and grass and vines and love it. So cool. Yeah. So um, the book also touches on how the lack of human interference allows forests to grow back and rivers to run clear. This environmental angle provides a unique perspective on the post-apocalyptic world and adds another layer of realism to the story. And it also serves as a subtle commentary on humanity's impact on the planet, suggesting that even in a narrative about a zombie apocalypse, there are lessons to be learned about our relationship with the natural world. And what is the ultimate thematic lesson that pretty much ties all zombie content together, Josh? Let's say it together. Humans are the real monsters. <laughs> stab them in the head, I was going to say. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yes, you are. Tr you are right. Uh Hey, that was a that was a Walking Dead season three tagline. It was I think it was like fight the dead, fear the living. Oh yeah, that's that so was back good. when the Walking Dead was actually decent. <laughs> Even though I love the show, yeah. they really did peak around season three. Yeah, yeah. Well, Josh, let's wrap this puppy up. World War Z: An Oral History of the Zombie some air War. Holes in the wrapping, though. The puppy <laughs> needs to breathe. The puppy needs to breathe. So World War Z, an oral history of the zombie war, stands as a remarkable achievement in the realm of speculative fiction. 
Max Brooks' unique approach to the zombie apocalypse narrative transcends the boundaries of the genre, offering readers a compelling exploration of humanity's resilience and adaptability in the face of a global catastrophe. Through its innovative format of individual accounts, World War Z provides a multifaceted perspective on the zombie war, painting a comprehensive picture of a world in crisis. This structure allows for a rich exploration of diverse experiences, making the narrative deeply engaging and universally relatable. The novel's sobering realism, insightful social commentary, and critique of institutional responses to crises make it more than just an entertaining read. It is 100% a mirror held up to our society, prompting us to question how we as individuals and as a collective would respond to an unprecedented global threat. World War Z is a testament to the power of storytelling. It can demonstrate how a tale of the undead can illuminate the strengths and weaknesses of the living. Its impact reaches beyond the confines of literature. It influenced pop culture and In my opinion, it reshaped our perception of zombie narratives. For its unique blend of horror, drama, and geopolitical commentary, its insightful exploration of human nature, and its ability to entertain and provoke thought in equal measure, World War Z is a must-read. Whether you're a fan of the zombie genre, a lover of well-crafted narratives, or simply someone interested in the exploration of societal responses to this sort of global situation, this book holds something for you. If you just want to know what will happen as our social contract slowly unravels, you got to check this book out. It's not just about surviving the zombies. It's about understanding our world and our place in it. A lesson that makes it a truly great read for content lovers and God willing, zombie survivors as well. Oh, <laughs> Brett. Yes. <laughs> That's my longest outro ever, I think. Oh, so good. Uh well, you've definitely done it because now I am going to have to reread World War Z. And uh, it kind of pains me to say that I had kind of forgotten about it because it had been so long since I've read it. And this is one of the great things about having a contentologist as a friend because I'm constantly reminded about things that I loved that have just slipped through the cracks. And this is one of them. Yeah, I'd say that World War Z is a, it's a cornerstone of zombie fiction. And 100%. it's it's kind of like uh, iZombie that I covered that book long ago on the show that it it reshaped my vision of zombie fiction. And uh, in that book, the zombies are conscious underneath the zombified nature and they could feel everything that's happening to them. And it's it's the kind of thing like now when I watch zombie shows, I just think about them being like iZombie and – I do remember there was a, an era when that piece of zombie fiction that had reshaped the way that I looked at all other zombie fiction was this book cause I, and, and the zombie survival guide because I read both of them in my youth and it really just contributed to the way I look at future zombie fiction and how much I just love it. People that say that they're tired of zombie fiction, they're just not right. Because it's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a feeling. I mean, it's no surprise that this kind of ended up on the back burner. It came out in 2006. So it's been around for a while. And, you know, as profess- professional contentologists, which is a thing, we have to stay up to it's date real. on all the latest content. So, it, you know, it's hard to uh, 
you got 17 books to reread like once a year. It's hard to it's hard to remember it all, but I'll be here to remind you how great World War Z is anytime, buddy. Perfect. Well, this is you've accomplished the goal of the show. You sold me on rereading a book that I've probably read 50 times already. Nice work, Brett. Thank you, you got it, so buddy. much. That's why I love the show. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to the show. We appreciate it. Uh, if you want to get in contact with us and tell us about content that you love or maybe something that you consumed because we recommended it, you can email us at contentclearinghouse at gmail.com. We also do stuff on social media. We post things. You know how social media works. Uh, you can follow us at The Content Clearinghouse on Instagram and Facebook. And thank you so much. We'll be back in two weeks with more amazing content to jam into your ear holes.